Matthew eight <clears throat> twenty-eight through nine one. <clears throat> when he came to the other side into the country of the Gardenes, two men who were demon possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine. And the and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. On Twitter a few weeks ago, someone posted this, posed this question. What is a movie quote you still say, whether anybody will get the reference anymore or not? You have one of those? Um, this was easy for me because mine, I still say this and some people look at me funny. I'll say, are you serious, Clark? Does anybody, anybody know that one? Uh, here. Here's where, this is it. Hey kids, I heard on the news that an airline pilot spotted Santa's sled on its way in from New York. (laughs) You serious, Clark? Love it, it kills me every time, every time, I love it. You serious, Clark, is funny because Cousin Eddie heard the words that Clark W. Griswold was saying. He understood the words, but he missed the point. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we can be like Cousin Eddie. We can read all the words. We can understand the words. We can miss the point. We can... We can read a passage that teaches us God's expectations for, for sexuality or for marriage or for divorce or, or something like that. And we can come away feeling like God doesn't want me to be happy if that's what he expects. We've understood the words. We've missed the point. We can read a passage that teaches men should step up and, and lead their local churches or their families and, and come away with the idea that the Bible degrades women. We've, we've heard the words. We've missed the point. Sometimes in life, we can, we can pray and ask God for something that we're just positive is good and is right, and we get told no. And we can come away with the idea that maybe either God isn't real or isn't in control or, or doesn't care, and we've missed the point. On today's passage, there's a couple of different things that kind of make people sometimes read it and go, are you serious, Clark? Like, are you serious, God? Because in today's passage, it, it centers on these two men 
who were possessed by demons. We can read that and go, oh, man. Demon possession. Like we're, we're telling ghost stories now. Is this the exorcist? Like, I don't know about that. And then what happens in the story is Jesus allows or even causes, depending upon how you want to read it, a whole herd of pigs to die at the, at the same time. And then that can be a little bit hard to swallow. Like, how can this be good? Well, the Bible's clear that Jesus and his gospel can sometimes seem foolish and offensive. So here's, here's what I'd like for us to do today. I, I want us to see if we can maybe avoid being offended by what is said here long enough to at least get the bigger point. I want to give you a framework for thinking about what can be a really... This is one of those passages where you read and you can kind of say, I kind of wish this wasn't in there. It would be a lot easier for me to explain uh, why I like Jesus to my friends if stuff like this wasn't in here. So I want to give us a framework for thinking about this and see if we can find the larger point, okay? That's what we're doing today. We'll start in, in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 8, where we read this. We read that Jesus and his disciples arrive on the other side. And you kind of have to look above that to understand what that even means. In the passage we studied last week, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and they sailed from Capernaum across the Sea of Galilee. Last week there was a storm and Jesus calmed that storm on that. It's a big lake, really, a freshwater lake, but it's usually called the Sea of Galilee. And now they finally made it to the other side. The region of, um, depending upon your translations, translation, it's called the, the region of the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes or the Gergesenes, different words, same place. The original reader would have known right away that they're not in Galilee anymore. Once you cross that lake, you're in Gentile territory. Um, the, the biggest clue, if you don't know the geography, is there's a giant herd of pigs running around, and the Jews weren't all that big on having herds of pigs running around their neighborhoods. Uh, Jews and pigs didn't get along that well, but that's a story for a different, for a different day. So they go ashore. They're in this Roman region called the Decapolis. If you know your Bible geography, that's where they're at. On the shore, and as soon as they go ashore, Matthew tells us there are two men that are demon-possessed. And I want to just stop and talk about the two men real fast, because if you are familiar with this story, you might be puzzled that there's two men who are possessed by demons, because maybe you've always heard this story and there was only one guy, and all of a sudden there's two. Um, So just to keep you from getting hung up on that, uh, Mark and Luke tell this story too, and they only talk about one guy. Uh, we'll see this again, and this is the only time I'm going to talk about it, so listen closely. Um, when, when Jesus rides into Palm Sunday on the colt, the other Gospels only say there's one animal there, the colt. Matthew's going to show us two, the colt and his mother. Uh, there's a blind man healed in the other Gospels. Matthew's going to tell us there are two blind men. Uh, here's a couple different ways to think about this. Some scholars think that they call this the doubling of Matthew. That Matthew wants to emphasize something. He's using a rhetorical device. He's doubling the character to sort of make it like on the, the testimony of two witnesses type of thing. 
Here's what I think. I think there really were two demoniacs and two blind men and two animals on that day. But the other gospel writers just talked about the one that had the main response. So I think the other gospel writers leave one out, which is fine. It's their story. Um, So anyway, just so you know, it's not what I want you to focus on. What I want you to focus on in verse 28 is the condition that these two men are in. For whatever reason, God has allowed forces of darkness, demons, fallen angels to inhabit these men's like physical bodies. This is the part that can be hard to stomach for enlightened, intelligent folks like yourselves. But this is what we're told. Um, How are they, or what condition are they in when Jesus finds them? Well, we're told they are, they, they live surrounded by death. They live to a Jew. If you were a first century Jew reading this, they live around pigs and dead people. That, that is just, that's a terrible place to live. It's very unclean, surrounded by death, in darkness. They live among the, the tombs that were, would have been carved into these rocky hillsides. And they're extremely territorial and selfish, violently so. You remember the three billy goats gruff, right? The trolls under the bridge that won't let people go across. That's what these guys always remind me of. Territorial, only they're guarding this place nobody wants to be. It's like they're surrounded by death and they love it. They don't want to share. They're violent. They're isolated. They live alone. And that's the state they're in. Now, if you have a hard time buying this, the whole demon possession thing, and the whole case of, of demons and uh, forces of darkness anyway, I, I want to challenge you with that first. First, if, if you believe in God, maybe you believe in Jesus, or maybe you believe in good angels. Right? If you believe in those things, but you don't believe in the demonic world, I want to let you know you are picking and choosing what to believe out of this. You're making up a theology that, that makes you comfortable. Because the Bible clearly teaches all those things I just talked about are, are real. Now, praise God that God does not allow forces of darkness to act upon us under normal circumstances in the same way they acted upon These guys, this is not normative. It wasn't normative in Jesus' day either. These things are real, and they scheme against people. To keep people away from Jesus, to keep Christians from being effective. The Apostle Paul, writing to people who lived in our same spiritual era, we're in the last age that started after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. The church age, this is the last age there is until God begins to usher in the end of the ages. And Paul wrote to people living in our era, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Paul said, you know who your real enemy is? Satan in the demonic world. 
And again, thank you, God, that God does not allow the demonic world to work against us like they worked against this poor guy. But listen, if you think about where these demons kept these men physically, the same types of spiritual forces like to keep people in the same sort of condition spiritually and emotionally. Does your real enemy want you to be isolated? Yes. If you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, does he want you to stay there? Yes. Does he want you to be angry and violent and selfish and territorial? Yes. It's our same enemy who works toward the same goals. He wants bad for people. And, And when we stay those things, when we stay isolated and bitter and territorial and angry, our enemy is who wins that day. Now on this day, these enemies meet their match and they know it. In verses 29 through 31, these demons inside of these men, they see Jesus like uh, maybe getting out of the boat, I don't know, but they, they come ashore and, and as soon as they see Jesus, they respond in a way to where these, these demons like become our teachers. We learn today from demons. Please listen to the rest of the sermon. Don't let that be your takeaway. I don't want you to go to lunch today and say, in our church, demons are our teachers. That that will give people the wrong idea. Please don't do that. But check out what these demons realize that most people don't. The first thing they say when they they see Jesus is they, they yell at Jesus, Son of God. If you glance up, if your Bible's open, you glance up into verse 27. The disciples who have been with Jesus for an extended period of time now, and they've seen lots of evidence as to who he really is, they're still trying to figure out Jesus' real identity. The last thing the disciples said in this book is basically, who is this guy? What kind of guy is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Jesus. We know he's a man because we live with him, but he does stuff only God can do. Who is this? They're still trying to figure it out. Not these demons. They take one look at Jesus and they say, we know who you are. You're you're God the Son. You're the Son of God. How do they know who Jesus is? Because Jesus created them. Sometime in eternity past, John chapter 1, there's nothing that has been created that he didn't create including these demons. They were good angels at one point, and who they rebelled against was Jesus. And they know him when they see him. And they say, Son of God. Then they say something. It's a figure of speech. It gets hard to translate. Um, This version has them saying, Leave us alone. Uh, Literally, it's something like, What to us and you? It It can mean, Leave us alone. It can mean, Leave me alone. It can mean, What business do we have together? We shouldn't be together. Then they say, so that they know who he is. They don't like that he has come to where they are at. And then they say this in verse 29. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Here's what they know. They know Jesus is the eternal judge. They know every being, including demonic angels, 
are going to stand before Jesus and face a judgment, and they know their judgment's not going to go well. It's going to, it's going to result in them entering into torment. They see a large herd of pigs. In verse 31, they beg Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs over there. You remember Br'er Rabbit? Please don't throw me in the briar patch. The demons are kind of doing, they think they're doing something like that. That herd of filthy pigs would be a fitting place for us. That, oh man, we're so low. That would be, why don't you send us there? We'll talk about that in a minute. But for now, Here's what, they, here's what that lets us know. They say, if you drive us out, necessarily meaning, and we know you can. Like, if you tell us to get out of these two men, we have no choice but to obey you. So here's what these demons know. That lots of people in the scriptures and millions of people over the last 2,000 years have missed. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That he is the judge before whom every person will stand. To hear their eternal fate. That even though he allows this world to operate with a certain amount of freedom, he is the ultimate authority. If only more and more people could know what these demons do. Because here's the difference between people and demons. We have a chance of redemption and forgiveness. And they don't. But that's what they know. And they've asked, will you let us go into that herd of pigs if you drive us out? Apparently Jesus was planning to drive them out. And in verse 32, Jesus frees these two men and he casts out these demons. We read it this way in verse 32. And, that's, and Jesus said, Go. And so the demons came out and they went into the pigs and that herd rushed down the steep slope into the lake and drowned in the water. One word, go. It's a command. It's an imperative. So he's forcing them to leave the men, but he's also giving them permission to go where they have asked to go, which is into this, this herd of pigs. And uh, when, when the demons enter into those pigs, they take control of the faculties of the pigs the way they had controlled the men's, and they, they make this entire herd of pigs. We read elsewhere, there's, there's thousands of them, and they all rush down and, and drown in this big lake. Here's another part of the story where we want to stop and say, like, are you serious, God? I mean, what a terrible story. <laughs> It's no wonder people didn't want to be around Jesus after what he did. He's a butcher. He's not so good on a local economy. Just be honest and answer this question. Does this seem kind of heartless to you? If nothing else, at the very least, this doesn't seem like a very good advertisement for Jesus' ministry, right? Right? I mean, our next outreach event is not going to involve like drowning someone's pig farm, right? That's not be a very good advertisement. Like how would that advertisement in the paper look? Can you imagine? (laughs) What would people think of us? You know, come on out to Ike's cabin at the lake. We're going to drive two semi-loads of boobox steers into into, into Lake Enders. It's going to be great. A spirit-filled time. 
Maybe we'll run over some pets on the way out there. Come join the Berean church. How can this, how can this be good? This is what I want to give you a framework to, to think about. You know, when you get to a passage like this in the scriptures, don't be scared of it. Think. If Jesus is who he said he was, he was not caught off guard by what these demons did. Could he have prevented it and stopped it? Yes. He chose not to. Why? Why? What are we supposed to learn? If he wasn't wrong by allowing this, what makes him right? All right, first, Jesus is going to make clear not too long from now in this book of Matthew um, what I think we should know anyway. And that's this. In God's economy, people are infinitely more valuable than animals. In God's economy. God cares how we treat animals. I believe. We're supposed to be good stewards. Uh, But even though a whole herd of pigs died, two men were saved. And that's a trade-off God would take all day, every day. Jesus will say it this way. He's going to be in an argument with the Pharisees in chapter 12, and he's going to just ask, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? The answer is infinitely more valuable. The the least capable person, the oldest person, the most infirm person, the most disabled person is infinitely more valuable than the most valuable animal which would be like secretariat, maybe, <laughs> right? Sea biscuit or something like that. Infinitely more value. I don't think our, our focus should be, oh, the poor pigs. Our focus should be, Jesus has the power to free people from, the for, from forces of darkness and the clutches of death. However, I'm not saying the death of all these pigs in and of itself would be a good thing. It's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to maybe turn our stomach a little bit. But I think I know why Jesus allowed all these pigs to die, which, by the way, he only allowed them to die a little early. Like All of these pigs were going to be killed and eaten Right? That's where they were headed. I don't know how to break this to you, but they weren't going to a retirement community. Right? They weren't going to uh, feces acres or whatever you would call a swine retirement community, right? Where they would live the rest of their days. Uh, a guy named uh, S. Lewis Johnson. I don't know if you've ever heard S. Lewis Johnson preached. He's, he's, he's gone now. He's dead now. But he was a professor of, of the New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. He once said this about this passage and people getting bent out of shape about the, the death of all these pigs. He said, What always strikes me as a rather, was rather foolish is a person who will engage in a very significant argument over something like this and then go out and eat a whole plate of bacon, which I hope I'm able to do this afternoon, incidentally, which I like. Uh, it's true. These pigs just died early. Okay? But I think I know why Jesus allowed it to happen violently and have it recorded for us. Here's what we're supposed to learn. 
these demons would have happily and gladly done the same thing to those two men had God allowed them to do that. Our enemy, who Paul says is our real enemy, Satan and his legions. Jesus told us their real goal in John chapter 8. Three-part goal. You know, remember what it is? Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Would those demons have loved to kill and destroy those two men? Absolutely. Had they had permission. And one reason Jesus came to earth, his best friend John told us in 1 John, for this purpose the Son of God was revealed, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is just giving demons temporary permission to be what they are so that we can see, wow, that's what we get saved from if we come to Jesus. That's who we are up against. Also, don't miss this. Jesus didn't kill these pigs. Who killed the pigs? The demons killed the pigs. We're supposed to be bent out of shape by this. We're not supposed to cheer the death of the pigs. But at least remember who the bad guys are. Jesus just gave them the freedom to act according to their nature. So if you're sickened, be sickened in the right direction. Jesus, this is an object lesson for us. The logic that says, I don't want to like Jesus because stories like this where a bunch of pigs died, that's that's a really illogical argument. Because what the story is illustrating is, this is how we get saved from pig assassins. Jesus is how we get saved from the real bad guys. If we avoid Jesus because of stories like this, we're siding with the pig assassins, with the bad guys. We're staying where they want us and away from who wants us. This, This story makes us, should make us aware of how badly we need Jesus. And make no mistake, this is our struggle against these same forces. Paul wrote it this way. This, this is better than I could, could say it. So five verses from Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, Paul says, and he's going to describe us like these two men that we met in Matthew this morning. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived like that at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following our flesh's desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath." We were just like those two guys who lived among the tombs. But, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgression, it is by grace you have been saved. What Jesus did for those two men that he met on the shore of the lake, of the lake called Sea of Galilee is what he still does for people. 
He sees people who are as good as dead, captive to forces of darkness, and he sets people free. Now there's one more little chapter in this story. And it has to do with the response of the local people when they become the first people to hear about this story that we're still talking about 2,000 years later. The, the, the people who were taking care of all those pigs, they, go, they, they see what happens. They see Jesus you know, command demons to, to leave. And I don't know if they, they, they saw that, but all of a sudden these pigs rush down the hill and the pigs drown. But then they see these two guys who everybody knew were violent and, and, and like monsters. And all of a sudden, they're in their right minds. And so they go and tell the, the people in town everything that has happened. And the herdsmen ran off, verse 33 says, went into the town and told everything that had happened to the demon-possessed men. The entire town came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Why do people reject Jesus? Why, why do people hear about Jesus and decide, eh, no thanks? I'm not so sure it's, it's not for the same sorts of reasons that, that these people rejected Jesus. They heard the same story you and I just read and talked about. And most of them decided, I just soon you get away with, take all that Jesus stuff and get away from me. Why do people do that? What is it these people don't like about Jesus? Do they think Jesus is powerless and he's not real and they just don't go in for all that stuff? No, they know he's powerful. They know he's real. Why do they reject him? You know how scary it is to give up control. (laughs) You know how scary it is, even if you think someone's good, to let them be in control of you. It's really scary. And here's what they've seen. They know Jesus is powerful. But they also know they can't trust Jesus to do what they would always want. I don't know who owned that herd of pigs, but they lost a lot of money that day. And I don't know the effect on the local economy, but it wasn't good. And I think they looked at the loss of that, those finances and thought, I'm not sure you are safe, bucko. So we would like you to leave. You're powerful, but you won't always do what I want to do. Man, that's us. That's us. I mean, I believe Jesus is real. I, I believe in spiritual things. When I think about letting him set the direction of my life, I start to get cold feet. Because what I just said a minute ago is true. We can't trust Jesus to always do what we want to do. I said this a few weeks ago. God's not always going to agree with you. You're not going to bat a thousand. He's going to allow things in our lives and ask us to do things with our lives we wouldn't normally do. But this story also shows us the alternative. 
The alternative is darkness and death. Whoever lost that herd of swine that day could have gained something way more valuable. Eternal riches, eternal life. And here's why I asked Dennis to, to read the, the first verse of the next chapter, because I think it goes, chapter 9's first verse goes best, best with this story. It's the saddest verse in this whole passage, much sadder than the death of all those pigs. They begged Jesus to leave their region, and verse 9 says, basically, so he did. Jesus, we don't want you around here. We don't think we can trust you. Will you leave? Did Jesus beg? Did he plead? He got in his boat and he went home. And as that ship sailed back across the Sea of Galilee, the hope of eternal life for most of those people sailed with it. Here's what's scary. Nobody knows how many times they're going to hear about Jesus before that ship has sailed. And I want to mention one more thing about this story before I close, just because it, it just hits at something that is um, misused and misunderstood about Jesus. If we add some information from the book of Mark, when Mark tells this story, the, the one guy, the one uh, demon-possessed guy that gets freed, and Mark tells us, you know what that guy did? He went and got in Jesus' boat. And he said, hey, will you take me with you? I just want to go. Like, I know who I used to be. And I know you set me free. And I just want to go with you. Can I come with you? You know what Jesus said? He said, no. He said, no. I want you to stay here. And go tell those people this story from your perspective. Go tell them that you were more important than a bunch of pigs. Go tell people what I did for you and what they can have in me. And here's the reason I tell you that story. If we add that in, three requests are made of Jesus in this story. Uh, and I forget what the first one is. First, uh, the demons ask, can we go into that herd of pigs? What did Jesus say? Yes. Then the people ask, Jesus, will you leave and go away? What did Jesus say? Yes. And then one guy that got saved by Jesus asked, can I come with you in your boat? And what did Jesus say? No. Here's why I tell you this. The people Jesus says yes to and answers their prayers are not the best people and the best believers and the ones who believe hard enough. Here's just one story. The only person that got told no is the only saved person in the whole story. There wasn't something wrong with him. He hadn't been disobedient since he got saved. He'd only been saved for like 15 minutes. Jesus just had a different plan for his life that he didn't understand. So what do we learn from this, from this story? Uh, first, 
Jesus has authority over every dark force in the universe. He is our safety. He is our our refuge from darkness and from death. But he won't stay where he's not wanted. Something else we learn is sometimes people don't know when they're being played by demons. These, these townspeople who came out and asked Jesus to leave, you know what they didn't realize? We just got played. We just got punked by a bunch of demons. Here's how. You know when those demons asked, oh, will you please send us into that filthy herd of pigs? That would be a fitting place for us. They thought they were pulling a fast one on Jesus. They thought, he'll never see this coming. We'll go into these pigs. We'll make them charge down the hill and be drowned. And that will make people not like Jesus. Jesus saw that coming and said, go do what you do so that people can see that I'm the one who saves people from demons like you. And these townspeople, they come out and they're confronted with a choice. How are you going to understand this story? Is Jesus the savior of these two men or the pig murderer? Is Jesus the power that saves people from the clutches of darkness? Or is he someone who's not safe that we can't trust because he won't always do what we want? How are you going to understand this story? Can you still trust Jesus even though he won't do every time what you want? I hope so. Because you have so much more to gain than you could ever lose. By coming to Jesus, believing in him by faith, and asking him to be the Lord of your life. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word and its richness. I love studying it so much because uh, I have some of the same feelings that, that my friends here this morning were met with when we open this and go, oh man, what can this possibly mean? God, thank you for showing us in your word that you are the one who saves people like us from the clutches of death. God, we cannot control you but we can trust you. We cannot control you, but we can trust you. But we have to put to death our desires and take up your cross. God, I thank you that being rescued from death is simple. We just must believe that you saved us from our sin. You died on the cross under the penalty of my sins. And if we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, we will be saved because you told us that in your word. And we can trust you. And God, while we are on this journey of following you, help our trust not to wane when we don't see the big picture when we want to say are you serious God help us remember we can't manipulate you but we can trust you and we don't always see the whole uh, picture we love you God receive our, our praise while we finish in Jesus name amen